Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Master of Educational Technology program at UBC, this podcast for anti-racism speaker series. My name is Dr. Carrie Ewart, and I am a faculty member for the Master of Educational Technology program, what we call here MET at UBC, and the EDI coordinator and designer of the anti-racism speaker series. I have with me EDI graduate academic assistant, Tamika Fisher, who will be joining us in this podcast. For all of our listeners, one way that we begin our meetings in Canada is to acknowledge the Indigenous peoples on whose taken land we benefit. This is part of a broader national truth and reconciliation effort in Canada and at UBC. I am speaking on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam peoples. Our podcasting booth, met offices, and servers are located on this territory. And I am honored, humbled, fortunate, and appreciative to work and play on this land. I recognize the historical wrongdoings, violence, and the erasure of Indigenous cultures, traditions, values, and peoples of this land at the hands of this Canadian government. I strive in my own practice and role as Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Coordinator to learn, unlearn, and relearn from a decolonized lens in order to understand, raise awareness, and educate in order to reach a place of equity between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples and what Senator Marie Sinclair states will be seven to eight generations to achieve. A more expansive statement of our commitment to the Canada's 94 calls to action can be found on our MET website as the statements on commemorating Canada's National Day for Truth and Reconciliation 2023 with supporting resources. These calls to action invite us to commit to changes. MET has launched a series of podcasts that will explore the role of education and technology in social justice and anti-racism as part of this call. But before doing so, I would like to acknowledge and offer Tomka Fisher to state a territorial acknowledgement if she wishes, as well as Seth Windervane, our person of interest today. Tomka? Um, hi, I'm Tomka Fisher. I'm an uninvited settler, and I respectfully acknowledge that I'm communicating from the ancestral, traditional, and stolen territories of the Musqueam peoples. The traditional language is Halkamelem, and I am and my ancestors are from the island of Honshu in Japan, although my settler grandfather was born on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Swatson, and Kwantlen First Nations. And my settler mother was born on the traditional and unceded territories of the Lower Kootenai First Nations. I'm grateful to my hosts for the privilege of studying, living, working, and recreating in this life-giving place, and I thank them for their stewardship. I recognize my responsibility to take action to reduce the racism, oppression, and harms Indigenous peoples experience and continue to experience and work towards reconciliation. Dr. Baines? Hi, I'm Satra Debains, and I'm acknowledging today that I'm coming to you from the land of the Stolo people, the Halkamilim speaking people of the river. I give thanks to them for inviting me in, even as a settler immigrant to this community. I come from a country that had also been settled by colonists for 300 years. I come from India originally as an immigrant. And, and I have faced both uh, colonial settlement in India as well as here in Canada. And I see so much similarity in terms of one of the things I've, I've recognized is that we internalize the racism that is 
imposed on us. And I really want to work hard to understand what racism has done to our communities in the Valley and to work with the Stolo people to foreground their knowledge and their histories before I even speak about mine, because they were here much more earlier than we were. And to just start with my immigrant history is um, doesn't do justice to their displacement that we were all culpable with. Thank you, Dr. Maines. Now, the Master of Educational Technology, or MET, program educates professionals on the use and impact of digital learning technologies. This fully online graduate program provides a unique opportunity for our students to engage in topics such as the role of edtech in racism and anti-racism. Since the degree program was launched in 2002, close to 2,000 individuals have enrolled in the UBC MET program, with more than 450 students enrolled currently. MET dedicates itself to supporting its learners, stakeholders, and the public to make a positive change in communities. What is the speaker series about, and why are we talking about this in our podcast? Tamika? Thank you, Carrie. The purpose of this speaker series is to acknowledge the commitment that every individual has to inclusivity and to addressing systemic racism. With the focus on anti-Indigenous, anti-Black and anti-people of colour racism, this series seeks to identify the responsibility educators and leaders have to facilitating and supporting anti-racist approaches and strategies within their practice to enhance and transform learning environments and learning cultures. With a specific directive, being digital technologies, presenters and guests will discuss racism and tools to support equity, diversity, and inclusivity, and the changing dynamics of the digital age. Carrie? As a result, at MET, we are committed to a follow-up to each presentation of the speaker series with a call to action challenge. We invite listeners to make one change this month, no matter how small, and to share it with us as a next step to this podcast to eradicate racism through community building, education, and through the use of educational technologies. This call to action provides you the opportunity as listeners of this podcast to build on the anti-racist content from which this session and make steps towards change. For example, you might integrate what you've heard today and think about from this podcast what lesson plans or what workshops you can do to raise awareness for the issues of racism for students, colleagues, and friends. We will provide you with more details for this call for proposals at the end of this podcast. The topic for today's podcast is building anti-racism frameworks to transform education. On today's episode, we are honored to welcome Dr. Satwinder Baines, Director of South Asian Studies Institute at the University of Fraser Valley, Principal of UFB India, College of Arts School, Culture, Society and Media Studies, and Curator for the Gursik Temple at the Museum in Temple. On today's episode, we are honored to welcome Dr. Satwinder Baines, Director of South Asian Studies Institute at the University of the Fraser Valley, Principal of UFB India, College of Arts, School of Culture, Society and Media Studies, and Curator for the Gursik Temple at Museum in Abbotsford, which was purpose-built and is the oldest temple in the Western Hemisphere. At this time, we welcome you to introduce yourself to our, our listeners, Dr. Baines. Thank you for that kind introduction, both Carrie and Tamaka. I'm honored to be with you in this series. Um, my role here is multifaceted at the University of the Fraser Valley. I, I direct a research institute. I'm 
an associate professor, and I also uh, curate a Sikh Heritage Museum, which is our relationship with the community. So my work here is really grounded in bringing community in and for us to do both in-reach and outreach and to be responding to community on contemporary issues, but also historic issues. So it's a very varied bag, and I truly enjoy my mornings and my afternoons and my late evenings at work, where uh, we hope we are using our knowledge, building uh, relationships and transforming how we educate our young people in the school, in the university system. So it's a, an honor for me to be doing this work. And I always say, if you can do what you love and love what you do, you know, that's um, more than you can ask for. That completely resonates with me and one of my mantras every day. Thank you so much, Dr. Baines, for joining us. It's so nice to have you. And I think we'll get started in asking you a lot of questions just to learn more about you and what you do. So can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do, the evolution of this work, and where your passion comes from for this work? So uh, the evolution really comes, it's a very long story, but I'll keep it short. It comes from me being really interested in transforming communities. And it comes as an, from me, it comes as an immigrant. I arrived in Canada in 1975 and immediately faced all kinds of racism, which I couldn't really name initially. I didn't know what was going on because it was a totally different world that I was in. I grew up in India and so everybody was like me. I didn't feel the st sting and barbs of uh, racism. I'm I, I certainly felt communalism, but not racism to this extent. So as I progressed into living in Canada, I started to think, how can I affect change? How just as, as one person? And my whole commitment has been around diversity education and understanding multiculturalism and working within cultural communities. So that's where the evolution started was for me to give back to Canada for everything that I've taken from this beautiful country and uh, to really transform people's ways of thinking. I saw the platform of education as a really valuable tool, uh, both in the formal sector as well as in the informal sector. So I've I've given um, my time, my energy, my thoughts, my knowledge, uh, my theories, my experiences to the communities that I work with, uh, with an effort to um, have them understand a little bit more about people's journeys. And I'm a real proponent of storytelling. I really believe that our experiences uh, need to be shared. They need to be recorded. They need to be understood. They need to be believed. So all that work has brought me to this point where, you know, 20 years or so ago, I started working at the University of the Fraser Valley, where uh, previously I was doing some sessional work, uh, doing cross-cultural training, as well as some curriculum design around getting uh, schools of practice like social work and nursing and psychology to uh, them to for their students to become more cross-culturally aware. This is about 30 years ago. And then as I did that work, I realized my joy and passion is with curriculum. So... I started designing curriculum and then uh, the institute idea came up. So right now I, I run a research institute, which allows me to do my life's passion, my work to understand South Asian Canadian diaspora living. So our work is situated in the, in the present moment about how the diaspora has moved to BC, especially, and we do some pan-Canada work as well, uh, but to understand all the facets and uh, rich and robust experiences that people have had and to highlight and um, challenge some of the oppression that they have also felt over time and continue to feel. So it's a it's a kind of a two-way street where I do a lot of research, but I also engage the community with the research. So it allows me to 
have impact in a much more um, direct manner. So we invite people into the Institute to hear other speakers. We uh, interview them ourselves, and we've interviewed about 500 people now where we have recorded histories. The South Asian community in BC is quite large, but our history has mainly, mostly been erased or omitted or neglected from the Canadian record. And our goal is to establish that record. So for the last 10 years, we've been writing the history of South Asian Canadians. We published a book uh, in 2022 uh, on the social history of uh, South Asians in British Columbia. And it's the most comprehensive uh, book that I feel that speaks to the kind of the diversity of South Asian migration, uh, their politics and their identity. So that allowed me to get that into people's hands and hopefully they read a chapter or two and get a deeper sense of our community, uh, both its migration, its settlement, its adaptation and its integration. Wow, <laughs> that is absolutely incredible. And, you know, through narrative, through storytelling, we recognize what a powerful source that is and being able to revitalize people's stories and their truth and lived experiences through the work that you're doing, as well as through this amazing book that you've published, which will for sure sit or um, include that within our podcast. I think that that creates and, and provides both me as well as our listeners with this incredible foundation to understanding both your passion as well as where this work has come from and where it's moving in time. Thank you for sharing that. Pamaka. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Baines. And now we would like love to hear a little bit about the curation work that you do at the Gursik Temple and Heritage Museum. So for South Asian Canadians, uh, because we're a collective society and we're not an oral community, we don't have a lot of history uh, that we can touch and hold and speak to and experience. So our history is through the lives of people's experiences, except this one building, which, uh, you know, fortunately for me, uh, is in my hometown. Uh, it's a Gursik Gurdwara, which a temple that was built, started to be built in 1908 by about 50 men who worked at the Trisui Mill at the time. And uh, it stands in the middle of town. And about uh, we want to celebrate 100 years of this beautiful building. Uh, it was finished in 1911 and opened in 1912. So in 20, 000, uh, 2011, we came up with the plan to celebrate the centennial. So we did a year-long activity program for uh, everyone to get engaged with this site because it's the only uh, site of living memory for us that we can touch and experience and uh, go in and observe. And out of those ideas came the concept that we should build a museum so that we can then further develop ideas, share them with the public, because this uh, Gurdwara is a functioning Gurdwara. And so people come and go at their pleasure. It's We don't have to design, per se, visits to the Sikh Heritage Museum or to the temple. They come regularly. So we designed a simple... Um, idea to build a heritage museum in the basement in the Langer Hall, which used to be the communal kitchen. And it was empty now because there's a new Gurdwara across the street that's much larger that serves the large population now. And uh, the organizers were very pleased with that. And since then, we've been curating an exhibit at least once a year. Sometimes we do even two a year. It's really off the side of my desk, but it gives me a lot of pleasure because when people come through the museum and they see, uh, and I'll tell you a few things that we've done in there, and they see topics of interest to them, it piques their interest to go further and perhaps get engaged with their own historical record. Our goal has been to get people to understand our history because unfortunately, because we're not in the Canadian record, we don't even know our own history. 
You know, we've been studying the other, we've been studying the dominant society for so long. And it's only now I think we've had the leisure and the pleasure uh, of uh, moving from settling to thriving, where, you know, we were always in survival mode because we were settling in this country. And I think after 100 years, we feel that we can lift our heads and look around us and see who are we, you know, how do we play a role in this country? And what has that role been? So the museum allows us to maybe contemplate as well as to reflect on our past history, but it also challenges us to think forward. So in the museum, we do exhibits this year, we're doing on, on transnational marriages, which are of men and women who were born in Canada, who went back to India to find their spouses because the communities were small till the 60s and 70s. And they, they were so interconnected that they were afraid of uh, any kind of blood relationship with someone they would marry. So mostly they went to India to marry. And the men and women that they married, you know, came here and some of them actually got married in the Sikh temple. So the, the exhibit explores the idea of transnational marriage and then moves us to the contemporary moment, which says, is what's happening now? And we bring up the topic of Internet uh, dating sites as well, you know, as a negotiating tool between people. And that person could also be in a different country, but you're meeting them differently. So it's a very rich and very beautiful exhibit because there used to be a Del Monte photo uh, studio here, a photographer who's passed away, who donated all his portraiture. And there's about 8,000 photographs of families and their wedding outfits and they're with their children. And you can actually see the trajectory trajectory of the families over the over 20, 25 years. And so the photographs of the marriages are in pristine condition. And uh, it's amazing for people in the community to come and look at their photos, you know, from the 70s. And now it's, you know, this many years later. So we also have studied, for example, uh, the idea of religion through a feminist lens. So we're challenging and pushing the boundaries of what we think museums uh, can and should accomplish for our community. And it's, I'm, I'm happy to say we haven't had a lot of pushback. There's always pushback, uh, but generally people are very open to uh, whatever exhibit we, we design. That is amazing, Dr. Baines. Um, just the treasures that you're talking about are getting me really, really excited. Uh, the <laughs> photographs, you know, finding out that technology is having a hand in the in now in these transnational marriages, um, yes. and your ideas about the future and what that could bring to the South Asian community. You know, I remember yeah. going to the celebration actually. Um, and seeing the inside of the the temple and you know celebrating with the thousands of people that came mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. very exciting and so now i know i must go back <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And we do regular tours of uh, community groups, school children, of college students, whoever's interested. And so we, we do some public education about the Gurdwara as well. Uh, we're on social media. We uh, make sure that the website is well uh, maintained. Uh, we are consistently uh, collecting photographs. So we have a digital archive that we've been developing called the South Asian Korean Digital Archive, sacta.ca. And we have now about 10,000 photographs photographs that we have uh, um, we have downloaded and digitized for communities because everybody has so little treasure, so few things that they don't want to give them up. And we're moving away from the colonial idea of collections where we put things into cupboards and somebody has to come to the museum to see them. We're actually developing a digital archive so people can see it wherever they are. And the little few objects, that things that they own, their passports or their photographs of their weddings or children's births or 
other ceremonies, we give them back to them with a lot of care and reverence. And, and then the, the story remains and lives on on the website. That's, incredible. That's amazing. Thank you. Carrie? And in looking at this, just to respond to that, it's incredible because the moral imperative of the digital age is that things are changing at an exponential rate. And to not keep up with this transiency and the changes would do an injustice to the entire community. And so the fact of the matter is this is no easy undertaking what you decided in the year to create um, this entire space to honor both traditions and cultures and heritage and peoples and language and um, all of these pieces. So it's it's incredible. Now you spoke so nicely about the way that you are infusing anti-racism frameworks in an innate way, just naturally. But I would love to hear explicitly how you feel the work that you do contributes to the work of anti-racism as well as allyship. Yes, uh, there's a few approaches that we've taken, and I'll highlight some of them. Uh, one has been a collective effort at the university to create a race and anti-racism network of uh, students, faculty, and staff, and even community. And the network is um, uh, designed not to be a, a record-keeping network in the sense that we don't keep minutes. We are subversive in that way. Uh, we let anybody join uh, if they have an interest in anti-racism work. And then we propel ourselves towards developing uh, protocols with the university through our senior administration and through our faculty and staff. So we're a reference group as well. Uh, but we don't keep minutes for uh, any senior administration to kind of come in and see what we're doing. So we are uh, in the university, but we are also a little bit separate from it in the sense that we do our work uh, reflective of community as well as of the society and community that's at UFE. And then I teach anti-racism in the 21st century in my program. So we have uh, uh, every year we teach the course so that students come through that program and learn both the antecedents of racism and then the contemporary issues of racism. And there is no shortage of fodder for this discussion, because as we know, the world is still evolving. We have not reached, we have not created that roadmap that says how can races, you know, um, work with each other and really find meaningful engagement so I'm very um, happy to teach that course because I find that that is also a way to transform a student's thinking from wh whatever position they were in to a newer, newer, more robust understanding of racism. And so the course that I teach, as well as others who teach in other programs as well, all the courses of uh, anti-racism work, you know, come together uh, at, at a university to create uh, a sense of purpose for all faculties and, and departments to have this work going on. We also do a lot of public public engagement. So March 21st, International Day to Eliminate Racism, we certainly do a big panel. We also respond to world politics, like, for example, the Israel crisis, uh, Palestine, or Ukraine, Ukraine, or what happened to when Prime Minister Trudeau mentioned about uh, Air India being involved in uh, an assassination on Canadian soil. So we are addressing things as they come up through political science or through whichever faculty that's interested in having these discussions. And those are uh, much more open platforms 
platform. We create allyship with departments and with faculty across the campus. I am the vice president of equity for the faculty and staff association, which is our union. And so the union is very engaged in this work around issues of equity and racism, anti-racism work. And they're an ally when we produce a speaker series or we introduce some topics or we have a response to a political crisis. Uh, we also have allyship with our president's office and other departments like the international department, which has a large number of international students coming to Canada and coming to our school to study, but who are still quite uh, divided from the domestic population. And so creating those links with people as a, both as a resource, but also to show up, to be um, a co-conspirator, to be an ally, to stand with us, to put their signature down when we need it, uh, to present with us, to do the in-service. And so after Black Lives Matter, I noticed that we were getting a lot of calls from the departments asking them, and I put this in quote, you know, what should we do? And I guess at some point we had to stop and say, we're not giving you a, a, um, a roadmap. You have to first do the internal work. You have to understand your department. You know, how do people think? What? Where are they on the continuum of anti-racism work? And then come back to us. Because me telling you what to do is disingenuous because I don't know the machinations of your department. I don't know your people. And and, and to our to their credit, they went back and did the work and you know and tried to understand staff position, faculty position, administrators' positions, and work at, within the unit. So the allyship has been very much organic, but has also been designed in a way that allows people to do the work within their departments, but with support from us or, or other people. Uh, we we do a lot of media and public engagement um, with CBC, CTV, all the you know general news uh, news sites and uh, we respond to hate crime or issues of racism that are happening in our communities both in Canada as well as abroad so we're very fortunate that we have a lot of very good speakers on campus who can take those calls and can speak to the general public and we also want to transform the lives of of our students. So when they leave the university and they've had uh, whatever discipline they're studying, of course, they have their competencies in that, but they need to be more com also competent on society and how racism affects people on a daily basis in their communities, in their neighborhoods, in their schools. And we have that laboratory in our university where we can do that work. So our, our job and my passion has really to build those frameworks. And as I say, we don't have the roadmap. We're all creating it with each other. But at every milestone, if we can learn from each other and create a little bit more of a roadmap, we can all do this together. So no one is in this alone. And we must feel that we have to have allies. We feel we must have allies all across campus. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's the true essence of allyship that inclusivity, including everybody, honoring all voices and all peoples. But particularly what I loved in, in your speaking right here was looking at using fundamentally those frameworks of anti-racism in order to disseminate and teach and learn along one another within this capacity in a way that transforms and in a way that elicits change. And mm -hmm. there's so many steps in the right direction. There's many more to go. Um, but it it sounds from what you're you're saying here is that those steps have been taken and now it's continuing and just continuing That's to right. disseminate um, that information. The fact that you have this and teach it to a large group of students as a foundational course is very uplifting. 
it's something that I think um, will be the, the navigation to change, especially transformation, because it's through education that that change happens. So if everybody has that yes. baseline of um, looking at anti-racism work through those frameworks, through all of those capacities, then they now transfer that to their own, both professional academics experiences in order to um, continue that trajectory. So amazing. Thank you very much for that. It sounds incredible. I would love for you to be part of our work that we're doing <laughs> as well. I'll now pass it along to uh, Tamika, please. Thank you, Carrie. Dr. Baines, you talked um, a lot about your work to support educators, which is amazing. Now, something that I found when I was doing a little bit of research was your Saffron Threads project. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, it's a very good passion of mine to talk about Saffron Threads. Um, I've always felt that, as I said to you earlier too, that curriculum development and curriculum design is really important for anti-racism work. It needs to be embedded in the school system because we give our children up to a system, the education system, for so many hours every day. And we don't always engage with the system. We don't always know what happens when my kids get to school, although parents are, of course, very aware and, you know, advocate for their children as well. So we have for the longest time i've been looking at how the k-12 system does not reflect the history of south asian canadians in canada and doesn't it has a small little paragraph about the komagata maru i think in the social studies 10 curriculum and every time i spoke to the ministry they would say it's up to the teachers you know teachers can teach uh, uh, you know curriculum as they design it but the teachers were telling me they don't have the knowledge or the resources so Saffron Threads comes out of a kind of reciprocal relationship between the educator and the community. So we decided to get, we got some funding and we worked with Open, Open School BC, which is the curriculum arm of the Ministry of Education. And we spent two years working with elementary school, primary school and high school teachers in developing learning resources. So we have about 16 uh, resources developed for Saffron Threads, and we gave it to the Ministry of Education to host. So it sits on their website. If people don't have to navigate coming to our website because they may not know it exists, but it sits within the curriculum machinery of the Ministry of Education. And it also will now, I've heard, uh, elevate itself into the anti-racism curriculum that's being designed by the Ministry of Education. Uh, it, it kind of followed the trajectory of bamboo shoots, which was developed by the South by the Chinese Canadian community, and they developed curriculum for the school system as well. So we followed kind of the same trajectory to say, we want learning resources for teachers to have available to them so they don't have to go digging for it. And, you know, teachers are very busy and they may not have time. And we also worked with principals and vice principals of schools across BC uh, to develop, to help them access those resources. Because obviously teachers need to access it in order for it to be effective. Uh, so we have uh, critical thinking as our main um, kind of rubric, but through that critical thinking, we bring South Asian elements into it. But as as we also encourage teachers to look at who's in the classroom. For example, if they're talking about uh, laws that were unjust, they don't just need to talk about South Asian laws against South Asians, but they can certainly talk about, you know, other laws around the head tax or around internment that were created within the government. So the the, the tool that's been developed is it can be um, 
tweaked and can be impressed upon based on who's in the classroom. We also foreground all the learning resources with the, the First Nations community. So that conversation comes up as well. So it's a small part of our contribution to the K-12 system that we hope students and teachers will engage with. That, that's amazing. And actually, I just want you to know that uh, we did include a link to Saffron Threads in our um, anti-racism uh, resources that oh, we provided to the university. So. Oh, I love you. Thank you so yeah. much. Oh, that's wonderful. So this can be found through our UBC website under oh, resources under the Anti-Asian Racism Resources, clicking oh, on South Asia. That's so wonderful. We and we've also included the National Heritage Site as well. Oh, so wonderful. Thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. So just hearing these incredible, <laughs> incredible initiatives and aspects and all of these pieces that have created um, such an impact in this capacity. I'm interested in how the South Asian Studies Institute both got started, and you touched on that a bit, and what impact this institute has had both on your practice as well as the practice for others and of others. That's a really good question. Um, in, in the early 2000s, when I was uh, teaching anti-racism work and cross-cultural cross curriculum design, uh, I noticed that we ourselves at UFE had no South Asian studies courses. You know, I went to the dean and I asked if we could start introducing some courses. She said, can you teach them? And so I started my first course on uh, INCS 392, and it was about uh, settlement and immigration and how those trials and tribulations of families affect them when they come. And it was a sold out course, always had wait lists. And, you know, the, the dean could see there was a lot of interest. So it started just by one or two courses. And then we uh, started thinking about um, developing some research capacity within our university. And at the time, India was becoming a world power, economic power in the early 2000s. Liberalization of the economy in India happened in the late 90s. And it was early 2000s when you could see that India was growing as an economic power and we felt that the diasporic connection to India was really alive, especially in the valley. So we opened the Center for Indo-Canadian Studies initially and we were just interested in the relationship between India and Canada for the diaspora. We were not studying India as a subcontinent. We were studying ourselves here. And as I said, the luxury of studying ourselves was so pleasurable because we could finally write about ourselves and our own experiences. And the idea of a research institute came out uh, from that very small idea that we need to teach South Asian studies at UFE. Slowly over time, it took about eight years, we had 32 courses from that humble beginning of one. And we had hired uh, five new scholars in, in different departments integrated within history and English and social work and others who were also teaching South Asian studies. So it wasn't just me, you know, beating the beating the bushes. It was I was 
very supportive. So the impact of the Institute has been that we are integrated within the university. It, it sits on its own, obviously, within the research office. But uh, the programming that we develop is always done in tandem with the departments. So the departments can then develop their own resources and their capacities and hire professors and have students in their departments understand their own experiences as well. We have about 25% of the population in Abbotsford is uh, Indo-Canadian or South Asian. And the students are reflected here as well. We're about 25, 30% of the students who are South Asian. Now we have a you know 10% of our students are international as well. So it seemed like the stars were nicely aligned for us to do this work. And the impact of the Institute has been, I think, threefold. One has been that we have engaged with students every year. We hire about 10 to 12 research assistants who work with us on research projects. We have, you know, 32 courses that we're teaching. So academically, I feel we've, we've have made an impact uh, on the teaching of South Asia within the university. And the second is the research assistants that we have as students. But then third one really i'm really impressed by is that the outreach we did with the community has reaped real results the community comes to us with their contemporary issues that they want us to study or engage with we run a golf tournament every year that raises money for fellowships so we bring in scholars over a four to ten month period who will study a topic from different angles and we present a report based on what we found and we not we do it in an applied manner so as know we have some gang related issues uh four five years ago that was a really hot topic here and so we worked with the police to look at crime prevention strategies for south asian communities because the rubric they had that they thought people join gangs because of this this and this none of it was matching the south asian community so we've become a real reference point and, uh, and experts in the area we uh, we also uh, present to media regularly we are called upon to speak to topics of south asian importance and effect that's happening to us uh we uh we publish a lot. We write. We produce books, articles, journals. I sit on many editorial boards. Uh, we develop the uh, South Asian Canadian Digital Archive, which is a pan-Canada archive. So I think the impact has been uh, academically, I believe, on the coursework. Uh, student researchers who have hopefully taken that study as Tamaka is doing to their graduate work and continue, you know, the ball keeps rolling, we hope. Uh, and keep them engaged. Uh, and then we have really engaged with the community. We've become part of the community. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> As everything else, that community involvement, I think, is key. Um, yes. or else who are we doing this for? And yes. I say we as a collective, we as an entire society, and that we need to address the the needs, the systemic needs that are consistent um, throughout. And it's pretty incredible that you were able to create a new way of looking um, at gang activity, for instance, within the South Asian community in that respect. And so far, we find that things get siloed and they're pigeonholed into individualized um, pieces that are meant as a blanket for everything else and every other mm -hmm. community, which doesn't fit. And so I think that goes back to the anti-racism work in identifying that cultural, the values, those uh, pieces that are distinct to individual cultures and peoples. So thank you very much for sharing. Tamika? Um, Dr. Baines, can you please tell us a little bit about the University of the Fraser Valley in India? Now, how did how did all that get started? 
yes, I love talking about India. It's, it's my birth country, and you know the question of home comes up regularly. I, I say home interchangeably to both countries. I feel like I spend more time in Canada now, obviously, but uh, I still feel my roots are you know well entrenched in the Indian society and India itself as a country. I'm quite invested in in both education, culture, religion, language of India. But uh, you know, aside from that. Um, when we started the discussion about developing a center and a research institute, uh, one of my colleagues uh, who was from a city in India had gone with the uh, vice chancellor on a um, trade mission with the premier of BC. And they had met some uh, cha vice chancellors in India as well. And he met some good friends of his who had become, you know, in the education system had become higher up. And uh, the idea of developing a, a twinning program in India came up. And so we went to Punjab University, which is which a lot of people in the valley are from this small region in India called Punjab. And uh, they were really interested in starting an undergrad program that uh, students in India could take. It would be curriculum from Canada, but students in India would, spe would spend maybe one to two years in, uh, in India, and then they could spend one to two years or more in Canada. And the idea just started from there. 30 students joined a little classroom and we started a business program and it just grew and grew. And today there's about 300 students on campus at any given time. And about that many leaving every year or uh, half of that leaving every year to come to UFE. So they spend one to two years or three years in India studying at our campus in Chandigarh. And then they come here and finish their degrees. They don't have to come here. They can also finish in India as well. But most of the students do come to Canada. And some of them do go back because they've got family businesses or they're running you know, certain projects and they want to go back to India. But a lot of them do stay here as well. So it gives them a pathway uh, and it allows them to uh, learn Western education in an Eastern setting with the supports of family and other people around them. So they don't have those other stresses of coming as international students here. They're paying higher fees, obviously, because they're getting a Canadian education. But the curriculum is taught by fully trained Indian professors who we train and also by faculty who go from here regularly. So we have three faculty there right now every term. And we teach uh, business degree, a computer information systems degree, and we have a post-baccalaureate in management. And we have a, a relationship with the University of Windsor, where students will do one year of management degree in India and get their M master's in business management out of Windsor when they go to Windsor. So it's been a real success story. And uh, the students who come out of there, I must tell you, our international department tells us all the time that that one vertical of students who come from the India campus do extraordinarily well academically. And every one has graduated and every one of them has got immigration and every one of them has succeeded in the in where whatever they started. Now, I think only one student switched gears and went into a College of Arts. And we now run a BA as well in India. So he went to College of Arts from business. But most students have stayed in the stream and they have finished their degrees with really good grades and done really well. So it's a real feather in our cap to have this campus in India that we just truly enjoy and love working with. That is amazing. That success rate, 100%, that is absolutely amazing. And, yes. you know, these bridges that you're creating uh, between India and Canada and uh, within the community, South Asian community and between the South Asian community and other communities, uh, that is just so wonderful to see. So it's it's really, it's like a, a plant or a tree 
that's just yes. been growing and, <laughs> and branches everywhere and, and spreading. Thank you so much for um, letting us know about that. Gary? Well, speaking of that branch and those trees and all of the intricate um, componentsies of these, of what you do professionally and the incredible accomplishments that you have um, demonstrated and spoken to us about today, I think that impact is so far reaching. But we're also wondering, do you have free time? <laughs> do you get time to yourself? Do you have passions and hobbies outside of the incredible passions and hobbies that you have within your professional life? But what does Dr. Baines do for fun? What are your other passions? <laughs> what a beautiful question for me to really think about what I don't do, but what I should be doing as well. Um, so we are actually come from a long lineage of farmers in our families, both sides, my husband and my families. And so we are blueberry farmers as well. So in my spare time, I do help with the family farm. I not as much anymore because I'm pretty busy here, but we live on a farm. So we are active, you know, engaged with the farm at all times. I love gardening. I love being uh, grow. I see blueberries growing all the time, but we do a massive vegetable garden as well. Love flowers. I I like to walk and hike in the in nature. I grew up in a small town in India and called Shimla in the north, which was a pedestrian town. There were no vehicles. I, to my chagrin, I still don't know how to ride a bike. So I, I, I that's something I must learn. Uh, and I enjoy the outdoors very much, uh, you know, as much as I can, just to be tuned with nature. Um, I do a lot of reading. I also do a lot of public speaking, which I do outside of UFE as well, which I enjoy greatly. Um, I am raising a little grandson, helping raise a little grandson. So that's the you know, joy of our life right now. Um, you know, uh, I live in an intergenerational family where my husband's family lives with us. So a lot of my spare time also is spent in caring for the elderly. Uh, and, you know, that's a, both a privilege as well as a responsibility for us as uh, intergenerational uh, committed community members. And uh, so I don't know if my children will look after me, but for now, <laughs> we're looking after my husband's family and uh, my family's all over the globe and you know we like to travel we like to see the world we like to visit other people we like to have gatherings at our home i like music i like classical indian music I, you know i i try very hard to to fill the reservoir because you know if you keep giving then you become empty yourself so you know finding sucker and finding strength from other things that reinvigorate me to do more and to continue to do, to do the good work that I'm doing. I volunteer a lot. I am the chair of the Knowledge Network right now. I uh, give to the community through the, I, I sit on the Abbotsford Community Foundation. That's also my passion and I'm giving back to the community. So whatever I have, as a Sikh, as a religious, not so uh, fundamentally religious, but as, as a practicing Sikh, one of the things we're always told is to give back, to do seva, to do service. And so it's not just service to my family, which is important, but to do service to people who maybe you will get nothing in return from, but that you do it with a selfless act. So giving time, energy, your money, I'm a philanthropist, you know, is important for me uh, uh, because I think those things come back to you tenfold. Uh, and so giving back as well as, to, you know, continuing my professional career is important, but I'm not sure they always are very clean divides between the two, but they, they develop quite well together. It sounds like you do have quite um, an incredible balance 
when you're looking at all of this. And you're right, we have to fill our own buckets and fill other people's buckets. And if only everybody lived by those philosophies and those words. And I know both Tamika as myself have intergenerational families and helping caregive for um, parents in that respect. And just even being having them part of our lives is really important in that capacity. So thank you so much for sharing. Tamika? Uh, Dr. Baines, is there anything that we have not asked of you today that you wish to share with us? I know we've covered a lot of ground, but we don't want to miss any piece of wisdom that you have. I don't know if it's a piece of wisdom, but it's a, it's a collective thought process that I think we all should be engaged with, uh, Tamaka. And one of the thoughts I've been having more and more is that we need to um, support each other's experiences. We're too siloed. You know, the Japanese Canadian community, the Chinese Canadian community, the Ukrainians, the Dukobors, the indigenous people, white European settlers. We sometimes write the histories of these communities as if they were isolated. And what I want to do in my next a quarter of my life is to really build a deeper intercultural understandings of each other's uh, each other and build real alliances and networks with each other so when something happens to a community we don't say oh thank goodness it's not happening to me but we say why is it happening to them and that we come forward for each other and build those um, responsible networks where we are kind of sure that people are standing behind us with us for you know we don't have to be alone in this. Uh, the South Asian Korean history that when it was being written by us, we realized that the Japanese communities were around us, the Chinese Korean communities were around us, indigenous communities were, but it, they seem to be written as if we were in isolation. And I would like to in, have these intercultural relationships with other communities on similar experiences, on different experiences, but in a deeper, more engaged, more uh, giving more uh, collaborative, more community-spirited manner. That's our goal. I've started a bit of an intercultural alliance. We're just developing the the kind of thoughts behind these alliances and what they might mean. And on a on a daily basis, it just means that we believe each other's experiences and that we understand them and that we know that we're not alone. I think this sense of silo and being alone is is really harmful. Um, I, I agree with um, the silo um, aspect that you're talking about. And, you know, for instance, my family, uh, my mother was born during internment in um, the interior of BC. So, you know, we all have these histories um, and sharing them together. And like you're talking about the similarities, how can we support each other? That is, you know, a really worthwhile um, endeavor. And I can definitely see that being um, something of, of value to all of our um, communities. So I think when yeah. when racism, uh, racist legislation was promulgated within governments, I think they were quite happy that we were siloed, and that that's the way they wanted us to remain. And I think we have to not use the master's tools to to serve our own needs. So we need to create new tools that say we're not agreeing with the way you silo us. And even continues today, unfortunately, that we have to bleed into each other's communities. We have to feel each other's pain and we have to build relationships so that when there is a crisis, we know who our friends are. We're not going to you only in a reactive mode, but in a proactive mode to say, we stand by you. We understand your histories. We uh, we went through the same things. You know, how is it possible that 
racist legislation against South Asians, Chinese, uh, Japanese, women, collectively could be created and none of us could do anything about it. It's because we were siloed. We're stronger if we all uh, work together with each other. I think that's the next goal of multiculturalism. And exiting colonialist dominant ideologies in that exact where it comes at the hands of the upper power, higher power in the way that things should be done. So I love that that piece and that movement to that narrative. Well, we are nearing the end um, of our wonderful, wonderful discussion with you today. Um, I'd like to thank you, um, thank our guest, Dr. Satwinder Baines, for your thoughtful, impactful, and enlightening responses that really addressed building anti-racism frameworks to transform education. Um, It's just been an amazing time together. Terry. Thank you so much, Dr. Baines. You really helped us unpack anti-racism in a clear and a dynamic way. You are by far an extraordinary person who I think just myself, I aspire to be. You have set that um, modeling of really what we could do as an entire nation, as an entire country and beyond. And I think so many of your points will resonate with our listeners on so many levels. And so what we do is I want to remind everybody of the priority of this speaker series and really that intention of eradicating racism through acts and utilizing the content from this particular uh, series, utilizing all of the key teachings that we've learned from Dr. Baines today and move that to the next level. It could be having a conversation with a neighbor. It could be taking something that resonated with you from today's podcast, turning it into an interactive lecture, a workshop, maybe your own anti-racism session in that respect. But listening to and hearing the voices of it all, and we ask for you as our audience members to continue that conversation. We do have a hashtag at MET as well as hashtag UBC anti-racism. And we do want to thank Edith Lando, who is willing to fund little projects to take the words of Dr. Baines and the teachings today in this session and move that to the next level. And we do a call for proposals, a call for lessons, a call for workshops and ideas for you to take this to the next level. And all of that can be found on our website, which will be available underneath this podcast. So we quote Nelson Mandela in looking at the education is the powerful weapon, which you can use to change the world. So we are asking you to help with this change. No act is too small, nor too large. One last thank you um, to our guest today, Dr. Satwinder Baines. It's been such a pleasure. I can't uh, begin to tell you the pleasure is all mine. I thank you for allowing me to speak uh, so freely uh, and giving me this opportunity and this platform to reach people uh, in Canada and beyond. And uh, in some small way, uh, perhaps affect change and learn from each other. And, you know, your work, I congratulate you very much for the hard work that you're doing in the trenches, getting this done. This takes a lot of fortitude and strength and time and energy. I thank you for that. And I know we're all in this together. We certainly are. Thank you so much, Dr. Baines, and to all of our listeners here today. We wish everyone a wonderful day.